So as I was saying earlier, uh, we're in ordinary time. And ordinary time, for those who um, maybe have never been through a year or two of, of following the church calendar, uh, is, is a word that maybe seems uh, slightly misleading. By ordinary, we don't mean boring. Uh, we don't mean normal. Uh, we just mean ordinal. As in, the en- nothing is going on in the church calendar that marks the seasons other than the, the world calendar, or that is the seasonal calendar set up by the, the sun and the moon and, and the way that God created uh, with the you know the bent of the axis of the earth and so what it what it means by ordinary is ordinal or that is that which is established by the things that are ordained uh, when God set the heavens into uh, into motion and and as he sustains them uh, so there's nothing there we're not in Lent we're not in advent we're not in Easter uh, if if that makes sense ordinary time does not mean boring it doesn't mean um, it doesn't mean just you can now like stop coming to church until Advent starts back up. Um, it just means that this is a time in which the church is to grow and to live and to move. And so we've been going throughout Lent, Easter, and Ascension, and Pentecost. We've been following the writings of John. If you've been here at all, you you remember we've been through the book of John for, uh, I think it was 10 weeks. Um, and in and, and then we also looked at the Gospels, each Gospel writer's account through Easter. And then finally, these last few weeks through Ascension and Pentecost, we've been looking at what the Scripture says concerning Jesus uh, ascending to the right hand of the Father, as we just uh, recited in the Creed, and what he was doing in pouring out the Spirit and birthing the church. And so it's fitting, calendar-wise, that after Pentecost, we have a time where it's just called ordinary time. It's it's a time for the church to grow, to go out into the world, to do works of service, to bring a blessing, to, you know, grow families, grow uh, grow uh, schools, etc., etc., um, because the Spirit has empowered us to go out into the world and to bring God's presence. And so, We've been looking these last few months at, at, a, at a meta theme or a theme that weaves itself throughout all the writings of John the Apostle or John the Revelator. We've been looking, if you remember, at this theme of light and darkness. We started in John 3, Nicodemus, uh, actually we started in John 11, but in John 3, Nicodemus, if you remember, goes to Jesus and meets with him at night, and he's afraid to show himself in front of the Pharisees as one who would be inquiring of Jesus. So he goes under the cover of darkness. In in John 9, when Jesus heals the man born blind, uh, he the man is born blind uh, uh, spirit, uh, physically, and then through the uh, miracle that Jesus does in opening his eyes, he also opens his spiritual eyes, and that man comes to see Christ as the Messiah. Furthermore, the Jews have a, a dispute with Jesus, and they say, are we blind also? And Jesus, if you remember, responds with, because you say you see. He takes their question of, of his doctrine or his preaching and turns it into their assertion that they can see and they are the ones who truly know God. And he says that because you don't recognize your blindness, I can't heal you. And so we've been looking at, even through Pentecost and Ascension, when John in, in Revelation 1 sees Jesus, he's got what? Eyes that are open and they're full of fire. His very sight is life-giving. His perspective is the life-giving perspective for us. And so as we uh, turn now from, we're not going to do a uh, 
series on Revelation. It was actually pretty funny for, for me personally. I've never been asked to do a book series, and yet at the end of last week covering Revelation 1, four different people at different times asked me if we were going to do a series on Revelation. I guess they liked the message, uh, but no, alas, we do not have the time, uh, nor, in my opinion, do I have the foundation to uh, take us through uh, Revelation. I think that'll happen in a few years, so be patient. And uh, Anyway, we're going to turn back to 1 John as we uh, uh, look at these things. We quoted last week from 1 John 3, talking about the, the those who believe that they have a destiny, that they will be like Jesus in the sense that Jesus is bringing and drawing us unto himself. In 1 John 3, we looked last week that it says that we will be like him when he appears, for we shall see him. And so the, the idea that you as a Christian, you as a believer, your life, your, your goal in life should be to increasingly walk in a more pure way. John in, in 1 John 3 says, everyone who has this hope purifies himself. And so we look at the gospel message, that is, Christ comes, dies for us in our place, and then puts his spirit within us and encourages us and sets us on a path to walk in newness of life. And informed of those realities, by grace, we put to death the deeds of the flesh. It's not we put to death the deeds of the flesh to become like Christ. We know that God is bringing us to this destiny, and because of that, we have our behavior get in step with his will and his plan. So um, I thought it would be helpful as we move into this time of just growing and maturing to cover what John says about Christian life and practice. 1 John is a epistle that he wrote, not to any specific group of, of Christians, uh, maybe possibly one, but it's not like the Pauline epistles that are specifically written for the Galatians or for the church at Corinth. And so I thought it was fitting. Um, it's believed that John wrote this epistle to a group of Parthian Jews. If you remember when we were in Acts 2, our reading that day, it said that those are there were some that were from Parth, uh, Parthage or... Um, Parthia or whatever. Uh, and these are a group of Jews that aren't necessarily just the people who live in that city, but these are the, the people on the day of Pentecost who get converted. So it's believed that 1 John is kind of a general epistle to that region uh, of believers. And so interweaving with our themes of Pentecost, fire, um, ascension, light, darkness, I thought it would be fitting to see what does the apostle who we've been studying these last few months say concerning how we are to live our lives as Christians? How, how is the church to be uh, built up? So um, we're going to look at four elements today of this of this uh, first chapter. It's a very short chapter. It's 10 verses. This is probably the shortest reading we've had in many, many uh, months. Um, first, we're going to look at what John says concerning uh, the apostolic mission that he's been sent on, his encountering of Jesus Christ, what that has done for him and for the rest of the apostles, as we're going to see, uh, forms the basis for his letter. The introduction of a letter, of course, is always giving the purpose, the uh, the starting elements of the things that give rise to the other uh, imperatives. By imperative, I just mean 
you these are things you have to do or you should do. Uh, you know, when Paul is giving his writings, he says, "Put to death deeds of the flesh." Action verbs that are commands in the in the uh, uh, gospels and epistles. Those are what we mean by imperatives. So we're going to look at these imperatives that that John lays out, um, the things that he commands his readers to do. And then finally, we're going to look at the twofold element of the foundation of community. How is it that we can live as brothers and sisters without strife, without envy, without factions? And then finally, the idea that all of this is undergirded and encapsulated by uh, grace and forgiveness. And so with that, let's, let's get into the text. At the beginning, John uh, opens the epistle just like his other gospel discussing the word of life. If you look at this in a, as a pattern, John in John 1 in his gospel says, you know, uh, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And so here in his epistle, he begins with the very same foundation. Uh, Likewise, in the book of Revelation, as we discussed last week, Revelation is about the revelation of Jesus Christ to encourage and strengthen the the young fledgling church. Uh, My analogy there is what is the greatest way to encourage a bride to be faithful and to take heart before her wedding? It's to extol the virtues and glory of her betrothed. And so that's what we saw the book of Revelation was about. It was about revealing Jesus Christ. And so here, the apostolic message is the same thing. John begins by extolling Jesus Christ. He describes him as the eternal life or the, the word of life, and he describes him as being forever with the Father. And so this idea that that John is not only extolling the virtue of Jesus, that that's happening, but also he is combating multiple heresies or issues at work uh, that were coming in and trying to infect the church, and he smashes them while at the same time glorifying and beautifying uh, Jesus Christ. So, uh, Revelation, uh, not Revelation, sorry, I did it again. First John 1, that which was from the beginning, that which we've heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. If you remember back in the Gospels, we we talk about how Thomas gets a bad rap. We call him Doubting Thomas. Uh, But it says that Thomas just did everything else that the other apostles did. When I see these things, the the things that we've uh, seen with our eyes, the things which we've heard with our ears, uh, the things which we've looked upon and touched with our hands, this brings to me a, a full picture of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ did not come in a way in which he was a phantasm or a ghostly, non-human, floating around, kind of appearing like God or appearing like a man, but still being a spirit. Uh, this life is immediately identified as being in the beginning, and then John begins to address the charges of those who teach that Jesus Christ at one time came into being. So he's combating multiple heresies at the same time of extolling the virtue and beauty of Jesus Christ. I have this thought from time to time when I remember what the incarnation means, and having just recently celebrated ascension, Jesus Christ is in a body. He is a man sitting at the right hand of the Father, and that is the Christian faith. Jesus does not, after the ascension, disappear. As we saw in Pentecost, Pentecost, the sending of the Holy Spirit, is the proof that Jesus has ascended, as Peter argues in Acts 2. And so we believe that we have a, a faith that is based upon a victorious man 
in, at, at revealing true humanity, revealing the ideal man. The ideal man being Jesus Christ, as we saw in Revelation 1. And so here, John is simultaneously combating multiple heresies that Jesus was just a spirit and he looked like a man occasionally, or that Jesus at one time began to exist, but he was not eternal. And, and all the while, John's encouraging the church with a, with a vision of Jesus. So at this point, we, we also need to look at what John says concerning how we interacted or the apostles uh, interacted with Jesus Christ. So G- John says at this point, he doesn't use a royal we. Have you ever heard of royal we? The idea of, you know, when maybe one of your parents is speaking for the other and says, well, we don't approve of that. Um, that's a royal we. Um, sometimes, you know, when if you're a, a magistrate, you might speak for the crown. Uh, you use the 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 uh, plural pronoun we, but you are a singular person. Here, this is not a royal we, but rather an apostolic we. It's it's not a condescending we like if you have a child who's sick. Um, in, in a patronizing way, you might say, "And how are we feeling today?" Um, you know, asking that—it's it, not that. It's—it's it's not a, a royal we. It's not a condescending we. It's an apostolic we. What John is doing is saying the things which we, uh, identifying himself as an apostle and the other apostles, he's saying that my revelation, my testimony concerning Jesus Christ is in concert and in unison with the testimony from the rest of the apostles, and presumably the the people who are with him uh, as he is working on Patmos, uh, which we talked about last week. So John is saying that all the apostles testify concerning uh, the life of Christ in a way that is in unison, it's in harmony. And so the idea that, that the Bible presents a unified witness of Jesus Christ, that's not a, uh, a fabrication that Protestant theology cr- comes up with. It is deeply embedded in the text of, of the scripture itself. John here is writing and doesn't even address himself as the writer, unlike Paul does, but he says, we and all the uh, early church and modern theologians receive this as John the Apostle's letter specifically, and yet he is he is uh, sufficient to say just we. I and the other apostles experience these things. Jesus, in his incarnation, encountered humanity through experiential means, through speech, through his physical presence, through physical touch. He's not a, a God who is transcendent and never imminent. He is a God who is transcendent, and yet through the incarnation, he has become intimately acquainted with you and I. He has taken on our frailty, and yet through the power of the Spirit lives victoriously even now for us after his resurrection and ascension. He's truly human. He has a real soul and a real body. This is These are some of the things that the church had to fight off ideas that Jesus Christ was not a real man, or that he was, uh, Jesus was a man and Christness came and resided in him, uh, which is complete heresy. The Holy Spirit, when he descends on on Jesus at Jesus's baptism, Jesus is receiving in a way the baptism in the Spirit in a way that he would be the the foreshadowing or the forerunner for us who would come to the Lord through the church through baptism and the baptism of the Spirit. And so Jesus is not uh, he's not Christ only after his water baptism. Jesus Christ 
is eternal and through his incarnation has been revealed as what John says here, the eternal life, uh, who he has life in himself. And so Jesus is a real human. He, he takes on through his incarnation humanity and he has a real soul and a real body. He is not a phantom. He's not a ghost. He's real. And so John heard Jesus, of course, call him to follow him. Jesus, in his flesh, spoke words, and John says, we heard from Jesus firsthand. And then also Jesus is testifying of the Father through his uh, ministry and teaching. John is the one who leaned upon the chest of Jesus. It says that whenever John's writing, he always identifies him as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He never identifies himself as him. him Uh, John the Apostle. He identifies himself based on his interaction uh, with the Lord, his physical touch, his nearness that he encountered by being uh, close to Jesus. The Gospels say that John the Apostle would often lean upon the breast or chest of Jesus Christ because John, uh, just for some your own personal understanding, he was the youngest apostle, and so it was very frightful running around uh, all of Israel being 14, 15, 16 years old. And the nearness, the fellowship that they share is such that, you know, they were, they were able to rest peacefully together. Um, I, I read an article tangentially this week that says that American men are becoming more comfortable with hugging and... Uh, not just a handshake. I'm still at the handshake phase. Um, the Bible says to greet each other with a holy kiss, and I'm I'm repenting of that. Uh, I I need to probably be more welcome to hugs. But uh, English culture, very reserved, is handshakes. It's handshakes. It's sometimes not even handshakes. Just a wave as you walk down the street, you see your friend, you just go about your day. But here in this culture, in in their experience, John was able to rest upon the body of God incarnate, in that closeness. And John's saying the things which I've experienced, I'm declaring to you through the gospel, through through my writings, through the epistle. He obviously touched Jesus's. Uh, the holes in his in his hands. Uh, it says that Thomas touched Jesus' hands, as did every other disciple or apostle. And so John is c- combating those who say Jesus came into being, and those who say that Jesus was just a spirit, not a real human. This is vital for us if we're to have settled the doctrine of the faith as we go out into the world. We do not present a God like the Buddhists. God is not just uh, a spirit. Uh, spreadable peanut butter evenly throughout the cosmos. God is not away from us as Islam teaches that God needs to be submitted to, but rather through the incarnation, God has come and stooped down to our level where we were not able to hear him. He has come and spoken to us face to face. We've been looking these last few weeks as Moses goes up to the mountain, he talks with God face to face, comes down, has to veil his face because of the glory that was shining off of off of Moses's face. And yet John is saying, we talked with God in the flesh, face to face. This is an amazing, amazing development. This is the foundation of the Christian faith. We do not worship a God who is spirit alone. We do not worship a God God who we must submit to and please. We rather worship a God who has come in the flesh, taken on our frailty, taken on our sufferings in our place. And these are the things which John says we're proclaiming. 
So uh, John 1, 2, the life which was made manifest, of course, he's saying it was made manifest, but it still existed beforehand, uh, which was with the Father. Jesus was co-eternal with the Father and was made manifest to us. We cover this in Acts 2, but when Jesus says, let all of the house of Israel know for certain that this Jesus Christ, he has made to be both Lord and Christ, he doesn't mean that God made Jesus become the Christ. He, he means that God demonstrated Jesus as both the Lord and the Messiah. And so John is in unison with the rest of the apostles. He then turns to identify that Jesus was with the Father from all eternity, and because of that, the apostleship that they have is a thing that's ordained from on high, not um, from you know their own you know invention. John here is combating other heresies such as modalism, that is, Jesus was a mode or a representation of God, but that Jesus is is the same as the Father, the Father is the same as the Spirit. John is combating this because he's saying Jesus was with the Father. How can how can modalists say that that Jesus would would be with the Father if the Father and Jesus are really just different uh, faces, if you will, of God? So this this epistle establishes the majority of Trinitarian Christian doctrine and is a vital important. Uh, it, it is of vital importance for you and I to to understand. These are bedrock foundations for the believer. Now, of course, you don't need to know all the terms, but the doctrines behind the terms are vital for you. You have a real, true faith that is based on the actions of a real, true person, a real, true God who came and stepped into time through his incarnation. This is what we are to go into the world with. This is true hope. This is true faith. All the rest of the religions cannot uh, offer the sort of redemption and grace that John then preaches about at, at the at the end of his uh, at the end of this first chapter, verse three, that which we have seen and we have heard, we proclaim also to you. So there's a progression in the epistle. John has experienced the life of Jesus Christ, and now the apostles, through bringing the gospel to uh, to the church or to those who would become the church, they are transmitting the things which they've been entrusted with. He says, the reason so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. John says that the things that they experienced have been handed over faithfully, and the fellowship that exists between the Father and the Son is, by the Spirit, extended to the apostles and the disciples. This is rich Trinitarian theology. What's been revealed about Christ has been given to the disciples, that is, the, the disciples of the apostles, and the apostles are filled with joy when they hear the disciples putting faith and trust in the one that they love. In verse 4, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be made complete. It is a, a sure sign of grace that God is operating in your life when you begin to take joy when others are beginning to trust and look to Jesus Christ. So these imperatives here, John is effectively summarizing his gospel. Here, if, if you remember, John 1 is kind of repeated or re-summarized in the first portion here. Uh, he summarizes his gospel. He gives a concise description of the apostolic calling in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Remember our theme of light and darkness, blindness and sight, fire from heaven, if you will. The idea here is that John is saying we experienced Jesus Christ and we found no falsehood in him. 
and through what Christ has done, both in going to the cross, raising from the dead, and sending the Spirit, we have seen that God never lies. He's completely faithful. He's been faithful to all the promises that he made to Israel. And so God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And at this point, we turn to what I've been calling gospel imperatives. Jesus, uh, because of who he is, uh, demands that we walk, if we are to have fellowship, that we walk in according uh, to the, the message which we've been given. Jesus shows the nature of God, that God is light, and this is what we referred to earlier when we recited the Nicene Creed. Jesus is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. Jesus is demonstrating uh, what John is talking about. And from this, from this reality, John draws a conclusion. The when you hear gospel imperatives, that is, you must put to death the deeds of the flesh, they're not to be done as if you're just receiving the law without any grace or empowerment to do it. They're to be done on the basis of what has been revealed, drawing on the fact that Jesus has come to you, has come to us, has revealed the nature of the Father. They're not to be done apart from or to earn that revelation. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. John's, this is uh, kind of a point that he's just making and asserting. How can you say that God, who, who is light and has no darkness in him, fellowships with those who walk in darkness? What is the outcome of God being light? We must examine our walk and see if it is in step with the life of God. The idea for a Christian is not to the cessation of sin for, for the cessation of sin's sake. It's rather to walk in step with the destiny that you're called to. The, the questions we must ask ourselves are, are our actions done in secret? Do we keep our brothers and sisters in the dark concerning our life? Is our life done in such a way where there's just darkness and there's no insight, there's no sunlight into the way that we live? Are we running around practicing things that are against our faith? Well, if the answer is yes, and it often is for you and I, what are we to do? Well, he says we should walk in the light. The foundation of the church is then begin. Uh, it's then asserted as a point ipso facto of walking in the light. Ipso facto means just because of, or uh, a point in fact. As in, John is saying, if we walk in the light, and have fe- then we have fellowship with each other. How do you, uh, in your life, or with your eyes, see anything? You see things because of light. How can there be, John's asking, how can there be any communication if there's no light? There's no way for us to have fellowship or community if there's no light. If we don't communicate with each other, how can there be any fellowship? Verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship. What's the implication there? If we don't walk in the light, we have no fellowship. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. One of my favorite DC Talk songs, for those of you who've been a Christian for a long time, I want to be in the light as you are in the light. I want to shine like the stars in the heavens. That's what we were talking about for the last, like, six weeks. Uh, when we got to Revelation last last week with the stars or the messengers or the pastors of the churches and the the Philipp, uh, passage from Philippians and from Daniel, that those who are righteous and know their God will be like the stars in 
in the heavens. That's what DC talk. Actually, they've that's probably their best song. Um, it's got multiple, uh, you know, references to scripture there, and it's a beautiful image. What is what is the last week we said that we are the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. That is that God told Abraham, "Can you count the stars? Look into the heavens. Consider the stars." so shall your descendants be. That is, God is making a covenant to Abraham saying, just like the stars give light to the earth in the midst of darkness, so also your spiritual disciples will be what Jesus said, lights on uh, a lampstand. They will give light to all the house. And so we are to be those who walk in the light. How can we be lights to the world. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world in John 8. In Matthew 5, in the, in the Beatitudes, he says to his disciples after he gathers them around, and he says, you are the lights of the world. How can we be lights of the world if we walk in darkness? That's a contradiction. We cannot simultaneously hide our sins from God, from others, and yet be light giving. It doesn't make any sense. The analogy does not hold, and it should. But if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. It, verse 7 and verse 3 are a parallel. Um, the, the idea being that we are to walk in the light, that we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, son cleanses us. So what is the relationship between these two, verse, two verses? Verse 7 and verse 3 have this parallel structure. Um, We don't have time to get into all the ways that you can prove that to yourself, but it says we have fellowship with one another, and indeed our fellowship is with with the Father in verse 3. And so the fellowship is established, the forgiveness of sins is established by what verse 3 says, the proclamation of the things that the apostles have seen and heard. And through the proclamation of those things, uh, forgiveness of sins is, uh, is available. So if we're deficient in walking in the light, how are we to begin? We are to begin by going once again to the proclamation of the things of Jesus Christ, meditating upon the truths of the gospel, all that they imply, all that they claim, is the only way to see your need to walk in the light. And so it's you don't hear a message of walk in the light and you're going to go home and burn all your evil CDs and delete your, you know, bad files that you've got on your computer and call up everybody and ask for forgiveness. The the message to walk in the light is yes to do those things, but if you do them of your own need to feel like you need to match up with God or or to approach God in such a way as earn or merit his favor, you are not walking in the light. You're practicing what Paul says are the unfruitful deeds of darkness. They're unfruitful because they don't produce life and they'll eventually die themselves. They're unfruitful in that they're not done connected to the source of life. They're manufactured out of your own attempt to uh, strive and fit in with the Lord or to earn your favor with God. But what John is saying here is the proclamation from the apostles of the things of Christ, what he's done for them, uh, that is the basis for their confession of sins. So we're in deeper need of walking in the light. I'm convinced of it. I hope you've been convinced of it just recently. Uh, But what are we to do? Verse 8 and verse 10 uh, form a sandwich. Um, Whenever I I talk about parallelism, the idea behind it is called a, a chiastic structure. Now, that's a really fancy word for just talking about a literary hamburger. You've got a bun, you've got the meat, 
and then you've got another bun. Look at verses 8 and verse 10. If we say we have no sin, that's the first part of verse 8, and then verse 10, first part, if we say we have not sinned, that's those are parallel or they're tied. Uh, we deceive ourselves, we make him a liar. So we're in darkness, we're deceiving ourselves, and we imply that God's lying. And then finally, the truth is not in us, and his word is not in us. Stating that God's word is truth, God cannot be a liar, there's no darkness in him, so we are deceiving ourselves if we say that we have no sins. And those are the hamburger buns, or the hot dog buns, and the meat in the middle is the gospel. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice those two things. He's faithful and he's just. Why is he faithful? Because he promised to remove our iniquities throughout all of the prophets. He over and over again says to Israel, uh, though your sins are like scarlet, behold, I will make them white as snow. We looked at that last week in Revelation 1. The idea that he's faithful is amazing. If Yahweh was faithful to his promise to forgive the sins of Israel, the, the, the sins of his people, the church, um, that would be enough. But it says he's faithful and just. This is extremely amazing and marvelous. God is not just faithful to his own promises, but he's just. It's not, you're not getting off on a technicality. He this is his version of justice, that Jesus Christ receives the penalty for our sins, and that through that, that promises you grace now and grace in the future. The idea that, yes, although you fight against sin today, there are times in the future where you will fail. You will give in to temptation. Ask me how I know. It's just a point of fact. But what John says here is if we say that we don't sin, or we have never sinned, or we don't continue to have sins, we deceive ourselves, we make God a liar. And yet, in the middle of those two wonderful truths, those two pillars, a beautiful idea emerges that if we would but confess our sins, he would be faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you hate the idea of confessing your sins, or you think that you have no sins to confess, how do you believe that you have the word of Christ abiding in you? That's what he's saying. If you think that the confession of your sins or the the walking in the light is an idea that you don't need, according to the, the Apostle John, he says that you're making God to be a liar, and that your word, that his word, the word of Christ, is not in you. This is extremely important. If you think that you can live as a Christian, just going about your day and never reconciling with the Lord, never walking in step, never confessing your sins to God, how are you to maintain that you have any connection to the God who is light? I don't know what your theological opinions are uh, concerning how a Christian is to be sanctified, but according to verse 9, I think you have to confess your sins. I, I, don't, I don't think that as believers, we should just live in this relationship with God where we make it all about principles and never a relationship. To me, confession of sins to the Lord is relational. It's a, it's a way of recentering. It's a way of coming back to remember God's law and his faithfulness and his promise to forgive us of our sins. And so in the midst of this 
chapter, these imperatives to walk into the light, or to walk in the light, to put away the, the deeds of, of darkness, to follow after the God who is light, uh, those are obviously uh, cl- clear here. And we see our life, and we examine it as a mirror, if you will, compared to what John is saying here, and we obviously see our need to improve. We, that is, our need to live more in step with what the gospel says, that we are new creations in Christ Jesus. Well, how do you get from being a new creation in Christ Jesus who just lie, swore, cheated, stole, uh, you know, lusted, ate too much, whatever your sin is that you, you, know, you want to think about? How are we to get from being a new creation in Christ Jesus and yet dealing with these things that we see in our life? According to verse 9, it's the confession of sins through which God will not only forgive you, but he'll be just in doing it, he'll be faithful in doing it, and he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The idea that God is continually cleaning, continually purifying you in such a way that as you walk towards him, daylight will increase until it shines like the sun. This is a gracious offer of restoration and, and repentance. And according, accordingly, our shortcomings, deficiencies, failures, trespasses, rebellions before him, they are wiped clean in the midst of just simply confessing our sins. As you come to the table today, he offers reconciliation to you. He offers a place of purity of walk, to be in the light, to be one who is a child of, of God. And yet in this place, if we withhold from God, if we in our pride say, God, I'm not in need of you speaking into that dimension of my life or that area of my life, we do not have the fellowship that we wish to have, the fellowship that he's offering for us to have. As we come to the table, don't confess your sins out loud or to your brother, but rather confess your sins to the Lord. I do believe that you should confess your sins, but that's not. Uh, this is neither the time nor place to, to confess your sins to your brothers or sisters, but rather deal with the Lord. He says to you, confess your sins, acknowledge them before him, and he will wipe you clean. He will wipe away everything that stains your clean white garment, so to speak. Um, if Oh, we don't have kids to get today, do we? We do. If someone wants to get the kids, we're going to close. Father, thank you for your mighty provision that though we have difficulty in incorporating everything that your word says sometimes with the way that we understand uh, the faith, Lord, it's plain to see here that you wish for us to confess our sins and that you will be faithful and just. You're not making an exception. This is a part of the grace that you have for your sons and your daughters. Lord, encourage us today. Fill us with the the faith that comes from your word, that comes by your spirit, that comes through the preaching of apostolic doctrine. Lord, we ask that you would give us a mighty uh, confidence that you are faithful and that you wish for us to walk in the light. Help us to understand that even while we were sinners, you died for us. And yet, even now, how much more are you going to give us freely all things concerning life and godliness? Lord, we ask you that you would give us the grace to recognize our shortcomings, our trespasses, our sins that we commit. And yet, Lord, in the light of your gospel, to put them to death and to confess them as such. They are sin, and we are in great need of you to heal us. 
in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.